Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. It's nine o'clock on Friday morning in Jerusalem, and three men are nailed to crosses. The two on the outside are notorious thieves, but the man in the middle is different. While the other two curse and spit at their tormentors, he quietly lies down on his cross and stretches out his hands, allowing the soldiers to drive the spikes through the flesh and the muscles into the rugged wood. On his head, is a crown of sharp thorns that were beaten there as a cruel joke. Something else is different. His back, now rubbing against the rough-hewn wood, has been shredded. The cat of nine tails, a wicked instrument of torture, a whip with nine leather thongs bearing jagged bits of metal and broken glass. Time and time again, it has slashed his back, opening furrows and leaving him a bleeding mass. Something else makes him stand out from the other two. Look into his face. Already you can see the black and blue blood-filled bruises of one who has been struck repeatedly by angry fists. Notice the hairless crimson follicles of his face where his beard used to be. Still clinging to his tortured features are gobs of spit that haters have left there. But still... There are no bitter curses, only a loving smile for the soldier who's now finishing the job. His hands are now fastened, and the nail that will penetrate the tenderest part of both ankles is hammered into the cross. Already the pain is unbelievable. The cross is lifted up and then dropped into the hole with a jarring crunch. For the first time, Jesus' whole body weight comes crashing down, only to be arrested by the three spikes that hold him there. Few humans will ever know the unspeakable pain of this moment. Ordinarily, it rips from the victim an involuntary, unearthly, gut-wrenching scream. But amazingly, though, the man in the middle is silent. But as the cross jolts into its hole, a six-hour struggle begins. The weight of Jesus' head and his shoulders now sags into his chest, cutting off his breath. To snatch every torture breath, he will have to pull against the nails that fasten his hands and push off against the nail that holds his feet. For six hours, Jesus will have to do this for every precious gasp of air. He's only been on the cross for one minute, but already it seems like a lifetime. But for his enemies, the torture is not enough. Passers-by on their ways to celebrate the Holy Passover stick out their tongues and shake their heads at him. Hey, isn't this the guy that said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it back? But look at him now. Hey, fella, if you're really the son of God, why don't you get off that cross? Other haters who gleefully stationed themselves at the base of the cross nudge one another and sneer. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Hey, guys. If he comes off that cross, we'll believe him, won't we? Didn't he say he was the son of God? Where's his father now? 
Hey, son of God, why doesn't your father come and take you off that cross if he'll have you? But the abuse is incomplete because now the two criminals join in the heckling. They accuse him of being a charlatan. They say, if you are who you claim to be, climb down off that cross and save yourself and save us too. And yet somehow the man in the middle has still not spoken one word. Surely, as he struggles for breath, as any ordinary man would do, he'll curse back at those who curse him. Even an innocent man would cry out for justice. Even a gracious person would defend himself against such bitter charges, and yet he says nothing. Finally, as we look at him, his lips part, and he begins to speak. But there's no vengeance in his voice. He just says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The hours between 9 and 12 seem like eternities, but they pass. One hour, then two, then three, and now it's 12 noon. Eerily, though, without warning, the sunlight begins to disappear, but it's not the darkness of a thunderstorm, but it's the dark pall of night in the middle of the afternoon. As the last glow of daylight fades, maybe somebody at the foot of the cross notices that the agony on the face of the man in the middle suddenly intensifies. What they could never know is that the torture Jesus has suffered up to now is small compared to what will happen in the darkness. Somehow, Pressed into the narrow compendium of these hours, Jesus will suffer the equivalent of an eternity in hell. In Isaiah 53, the prophet said that God would make Jesus' soul an offering for sin. I can't explain it. I just know from the scripture that somehow Jesus will feel the guilt and the shame of all the billions of people who've ever lived or will ever live on the earth. And in the darkness, his body suffering unbelievable pain. Scripture says his soul is crushed with the weight of the world's sin and guilt. But the man on the middle cross has one more grief to suffer. His father, God the Father, has been his companion since eternity. Never had they been separated. Always the son had felt the pleasure and the delight of his father. But now on the cross, as Jesus carries all the sins of the world, he longs for the embrace and the encouragement of his father. But instead, and being a father, this is hard for me to imagine. If I were watching one of my sons be harmed, I, I can't even imagine this response. But the Bible says the father in heaven turns his head and leaves his only begotten son all alone. This is the cup. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I, I know he knew he was going to die for our sins, but I believe it was this part of the crucifixion that Jesus found unbearable when the father would turn his face away and leave Jesus to die alone. But that cup didn't pass. And heartbroken, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The end is drawing close now. The nearly six hours on the cross have drained much of the body fluids from Jesus. And still straining for every breath, the inside of Jesus' mouth is like leather. And he cries out, I'm thirsty. 
Somebody puts sour wine to his mouth. Jesus receives it and cries out, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And it's over. He's dead. This is the greatest and yet the strangest story of all time. Calvary, the place where Jesus died, raises tough questions. I had the privilege of being in Israel last June, and like many who have been in Israel, I was taken to the place where it is thought that Jesus may have died. And I looked at that hill that's so ugly and nondescript to think about the Son of God, the creator of the universe, hanging in a trash dump on a cross until he is dead. It is a strange story. And it raises questions. We've been in a series called Red Letters to Questions, but now this is our opportunity to ask questions. And we want to know, why is Jesus on the cross? History tells us that crucifixion is the most horrible form of execution ever known to mankind. And thinking about all the ways that mankind is found to torture others, it is, it is of note that crucifixion is the absolute worst. In fact, it was a death only to be died by the worst and most hardened criminals. No, no Roman citizen, regardless of the heinousness of his crime, could be crucified. So then, why is the Son of God on a cross? I mean, you and I look at this not only from the perspective of the Romans in the first century, but we look at this story knowing who Jesus was. Why should Jesus' hands be nailed to a cross? They never took anything that didn't belong to him. They never beat innocent victims. Jesus' hands never pushed anybody out of the way. Why are his hands being nailed to the cross? Why should his head be crowned with thorns? Why should they have beaten thorns into his scalp? He never thought a mean thought. Why should his back be lacerated and beaten to the point where the prophet would say he didn't even look human? Why should his back be lacerated? It had only borne other people's burdens. Why should his face be slapped? His face had only reflected compassion and mercy to others. Why should his feet be pierced? They'd only walk where mercy had led. Now, this is a question. It is a strange thing to see Jesus on the cross. Why is earth's greatest person dying its most horrible death? I remember when the movie came out in, I think, 2004 on the crucifixion of Jesus. And there were those who felt like that movie was anti-Semitic, that it was somehow targeting Jewish people. But the truth of the matter is, it wasn't the Jews ultimately responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. And someone will say, well, then are you saying it was the Romans' fault? Well, the Romans actually did the physical execution. But if you want to open the pages of the Bible and know why Jesus is on the cross, the answer comes back, it was the plan of God. I mean, Jesus is all-powerful. No people group, no, no force on the earth could have forced Jesus to lay down his life. That's what he said. No one takes my life from me. I lay down my life. Well, the answer to why Jesus is on the cross is to, 
to recognize that it's the plan of God. Go back to the Garden of Eden, to the first two human beings who ever created, Adam and Eve. They were placed there in perfection, but as we go to chapter 3, they have just been caught in the very first sin. And like us, they tried to hide it. And the reason they tried to hide it was they knew God's warning. God had said to them, if you, if you break my rule, you will surely die. But now they were caught and they were guilty. And physically, their death was going to become closer every day. But that's just physical death. The Bible says there is another kind of death that's even worse. The book of Revelation calls it the second death. The word death communicates the idea of separation. When we die physically... Our body is separated from our soul and spirit. But in the second death that the Bible refers to, a person who dies without Christ is separated eternally from God. And so when God said to Adam and Eve, when you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Well, it could be pointed out that they did not die for a long time physically, but instantly they were separated from God. And if they had died without God's plan of redemption, they, like all of us, would have gone to hell. The Bible doesn't exactly describe what happens here, but always think about that moment where God leads Adam and Eve to the gate of the garden and he expels them from the garden of Eden. But so like God, even though this darkest of all moments was happening in Adam and Eve's life, God did not leave them without a promise. In fact, before God expels them from the garden of Eden, he gives them the first promise of a Messiah in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And you can read that. Basically, what God is saying to Adam and Eve is, you've messed up. You have broken the rule. And as I've told you, death is the response to that. But God is not going to leave them hopeless. He says, someday a champion will come and he will do battle with Satan. And it's the most interesting statement that God makes in Genesis chapter 3. He says concerning Satan that Satan would bruise his heel. Well, many of us have had heel bruises before. They're not pleasant, but they're not life-threatening. And beyond that, they tend to be temporary in nature. So you sort of hear the message of God contextualizing the death of Jesus on the cross. And he says, Satan will bruise his heel but then God goes on to say, but he will crush Satan's head. I've been looking at that verse ever since I was very young. And to me, every time I look at that verse that says that Satan would bruise Jesus' heel and God would crush his head, I always think that happens in one single action, that Jesus bruised his heel while he was crushing Satan's head. The cross, the death of Jesus on the cross is the bruised heel. But what Jesus did to our enemy that led our first parents into sin and led all the rest of us into sin, what Jesus does to our enemy is so amazing. By dying on the cross, he forever crushed Satan's power to keep us eternally separated from God. And that's why Jesus is on the cross. He lived a perfect life. And then he lay on a cross and paid for every sin that you and I have ever committed so that we would not have to die the second death. Well, as I said a few moments ago, the death of Jesus on the cross is, is very strange, and we have questions, and that leads me to the second question, and that is, does Jesus' death and resurrection mean anything to us today? 
we're in 2020, and we're in very peculiar times. Easter, it's not going to feel like Easter of previous years. Good Friday does not feel like Good Friday of previous years. So in these complex and troublesome times that we live in, does the death of Jesus Christ mean anything to us today? I mean, nearly 1,990 years have passed since that day in Jerusalem. And we live a world away here in Wichita or the surrounding area. Some of you live various places around the world. The world has changed so much since that time. Do the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus mean anything important to us in 2020? It means, number one, that you have a reason to live. For those of us living in the United States, at least up until now, up until our current crisis, there have been two outstanding characteristics of our generation. Number one, the acquisition of stuff. And number two, a prevailing sense of restlessness and futility. Clearly, stuff has not made us happy. But the message of the cross says that life does not have to be futile. In John chapter 3, verse 16, the most famous verse in the New Testament, maybe the most famous verse in the Bible, Scripture says, For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Hey, that's amazing to me. The fact that Jesus died on the cross means that I have life, eternal. And in chapter 10, Jesus went on to say, I have come that people may have life and that they might have it to the full. So without Jesus' death, I think we would be like the others who don't really know what the meaning of life is and ask if there's any purpose to life. But with Jesus dying on the cross, it means that we have been rescued from our sins and we have life eternal through him. Number two, and we've already kind of hinted at this, Jesus' death means our sins won't take us to hell. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, there's a tiny but very potent verse. It simply says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, I've talked to many people through the years and I've asked them about whether they believe they're going to heaven. And I've had so many people say, well, yes. I mean, statistics prove that most Americans believe that they will go to heaven. And so when I would press them on why they believed they were going to heaven, they would say, well, I think I'm a pretty good person. Well, think about that comment for just a moment. When I feel like I'm a pretty good person, I feel that based on my comparison with other people. But Scripture doesn't tell us that this thing comes down to how we compare with other people. I mean, it's not like God is grading on the curve. Going to heaven means we're looked at through the lens of perfection. And I can't be perfect for 30 minutes. And Scripture says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, since nobody makes 100, I mean, we could be at various places on the grading scale. Somebody might make a 90. You might be good 90% of the time. Others might be good 50% of the time. I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure I would qualify for a 10 or a 20. But does it matter as far as this question goes? Because the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we know it's true. You know, we start off young in life and we sort of learn that there's a difference between right and wrong, and we do wrong things, and 
we sort of accumulate those sins like pebbles in our, you know, we have a handful and they fill our pockets. But it isn't long, generally by the time we're teenagers, we realize we're dragging around our sins in a big bag. And occasionally we may take them out and look at them in guilt and remorse. But how do you change the past? Nothing can do that. Nothing except the blood of Jesus, that blood that Jesus shed on the cross. You know, there are beautiful stories in the Gospels that Jesus tells about people who had not only messed up their lives, but messed them up really badly. I mean, we read about a woman in the Gospel of John chapter 4 who had all kinds of problems in her relational and sex life. She had been married five times. She was sleeping with a man who wouldn't give her his name. She was considered a throwaway. I mean, it wasn't like she had some problems or some sins. It was like her life was characterized by bad choices. And yet she met Jesus at the well, and Jesus offered her living water. And she went back and told everybody about Jesus and brought the whole town. I mean... Most missionaries don't have that kind of success. And all that happened in one afternoon. Jesus tells the story about a kid who said to his dad, I don't want to wait till you die. I want you to give me my inheritance right now. And he goes and he blows all of his inheritance in a short amount of time, getting high, getting stoned, sleeping around. He just blows through the wad and winds up homeless, and helpless, and he remembers his father, and he says, I'm going to go back home, and I'm going to tell my dad I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. I want you just to hire me. And yet the Bible tells how that the father ran and threw his arms around him and brought him back and said, my son was dead, but he's alive again. Jesus told that story to help us think about what we're talking about this Good Friday. And if those two cases are pretty dramatic. The third case, I mean, when Jesus died on the cross, we just talked about it a few moments ago. He was crucified in between two thieves. And those two guys deserve to die. In fact, one of the thieves will say to the other thief, we're getting what we have coming. I mean, these guys had not only stolen, they had probably committed murder. They were public enemies, number one and two, or one and one A. But one of the thieves began to think about Jesus. And you remember the story that Dr. Luke tells us about how that that thief looked over at Jesus and began to recognize how different he was. We've talked already about how different Jesus was in that moment of crucifixion. And I believe it was that very thing that brought that thief to the realization that Jesus was everything that he claimed to be. And with really no sense of expecting anything great, this thief just turned to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He didn't ask to be forgiven. I think he felt like that was a bridge too far. He didn't ask that he might go to heaven. He was just pleading with Jesus to remember him. Maybe he knew that everybody else in his life was glad to forget him. I think there's some of us who may have felt that at some point, that we've just screwed up to the place where nobody wants to think about us anymore. 
And that's all he asked Jesus. He said, Lord, when you come in your kingdom, would you just remember that I lived? Would you remember me? And Jesus turns to him while Jesus is dying on the cross and issues this extraordinary promise. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Have you ever thought about the moment where Jesus walked into paradise? He walked into paradise with his arm around the thief who died on the cross next to him. Does Jesus' death mean anything to us in 2020? It means that our sins don't have to take us to hell. I mean, how does Jesus offer eternal life, living water to a woman who has made so many choices as the Samaritan woman had? How does Jesus talk about the forgiveness of the prodigal son after he's blown his inheritance on, on wild parties, coming home and receiving the love of the Father. How does Jesus offer everlasting life to a man who has nothing left to offer, who is going to die in a matter of minutes, whose life has been a complete fiasco? How could Jesus make those offers? And the answer simply comes back, the blood that came out of his body. In the book of 1 John, the Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Anyone watching this message, wherever you are, anyone who watches this message can feel hope. In fact, let's flip that. Nobody should feel hopeless because the Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. Take the blood out of the picture and all of us, our sins will drag us to hell. But thankfully, that's not the case because Jesus died to pay for our sins. Well, I guess it could be pointed out that the third answer here has already been given, but let's just make sure that we're clear on this. The third reason why Jesus is on the cross is his death means our deaths are not the end. On that Friday afternoon, sometime after 3 o'clock, they took Jesus' body off the cross There were a couple of rich guys who had been secret followers of Jesus. And they went to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate would have known who they were. And they asked for permission to bury the body of Jesus. And they took Jesus' body down off the cross. And they put it in a rich man's tomb, Joseph's tomb. Well, the Sabbath was so close. I mean, Friday was coming to the end. The Sabbath was so close that there was little time to prepare the body for burial. And the religious leaders, fearing that his supporters would try to steal his body, went to Pilate and asked for 16 Roman soldiers to guard the tomb of Jesus. I guess that was the first time in history it took 16 soldiers to keep a dead man's body in a tomb. What they did not realize was they were providing one of the greatest among many proofs that Jesus rose from the grave. Well, Saturday passed, and those Roman soldiers must have stood there thinking, what in the world are we doing out here? Saturday passed, and nothing happened at the grave. But early Sunday morning, sometime between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning, something happened in that tomb. Something happened those soldiers couldn't do a thing about. The grave burst open and Jesus, the same one that hours ago died in agony, walked out of the grave in glory and in his power, 
Death had met its match. Death had met its doom. Death had met the champion. I want to close the Good Friday sermon with a story that I know I've told a number of times in my years at New Spring. This was back at our old location. I remember there was an elderly couple who were part of our church. And I can still, as I think back in time, and this has been probably 30 plus years ago, I can still see them sort of toddle into the church. And again, they were quite elderly and the years had taken their tolls on their body. And it was kind of cute to watch them come in because they would sort of lean on each other as they would toddle into the church. And they sat in the same place, but they're very, very precious people. And death came to her and we had her funeral And it's so often the case with elderly people who've been together many years, as I've just described, it wasn't long after till he became, well, very ill to the point of death. I went up one afternoon to see him in Wesley Hospital. And I just wanted to have prayer with him and read some scripture. And I knew he had been a Christ follower for many years And while he might be afraid of death, I expected him to feel a great sense of comfort. But that afternoon when I walked up there, he didn't have that comfort. In fact, he was very troubled. And he said to me, Pastor Hoover, I'm so afraid of dying. And he said, would you pray with me? And so I shared some scripture with him that afternoon. It was late in the afternoon and I prayed with him, but I was troubled by the fact that he didn't seem to have, well, the kind of assurance that one would hope to have at the moment where death was about to happen. So I made up my mind that I was going to get up to Wesley very early the next morning. And I did. I think it was just a little after six o'clock because I wanted to check in on him. And when I walked into his room, expecting him to still be troubled as he had been a few hours before I saw him as he was comfortably reclining in his bed with a big smile across his face with no sense of anxiety. And he said, Pastor Mark, let me tell you what happened. He said about three o'clock this morning, he said there was a bright light and he pointed to the door of his hospital room in building four in the tower over at Wesley. He said there was a bright light that shined in my room. And he said, It was Jesus who came through my door and he told me not to be afraid. You say, Mark, do you think it was really Jesus? Well, I don't know. I'm not betting against it because I was with him a few hours later. I held his hand while he died and he died in absolute peace. But whether it comes to us in that kind of moment or whether it's just the assurance of God's word for all of us who will someday die, it is Jesus. And he is telling us not to be afraid. Because about 1990 years ago, he walked up a hill and he lay on a cross and he hung there for six hours. And the blood that came out of his body 
paid for all our sins. And we ask the question, did what happened in Jerusalem that Friday, did it make a difference? And the answer is, of course it did. Well, I want to thank you for being part of our Good Friday service at New Spring. But more than just watching this broadcast, I want to take a moment and ask you, has there ever been a moment where you invited Jesus to come into your life? You know, wouldn't it be awful for this wonderful gift to be offered to us and for us to not receive it? And the Bible tells us anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so with all of our understanding that Jesus paid the price for our sins and rose from the grave, I would just ask you, was there ever a moment where you invited Jesus Christ to become your personal Savior, your Lord? Not, not just, well, my family is all Christian or not, I just belong to this church, but you personally inviting Jesus Christ into your heart and life. That, because that's what has to happen. Scripture says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're willing to believe that Jesus died for your sins and that he arose from the grave and as the living son of God, if you will invite him to be your savior and Lord, you can know for sure that you are God's child and that nothing can separate you from his love, not even death itself. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if you want to invite Jesus Christ into your life, you can join me in this prayer. I'll say it slowly, line by line, and you can decide if you want to say this to God. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I've done many wrong things, and I can't fix myself, but I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave, and since he's alive, I want Jesus to be my Savior and my King. Please forgive me and make me your child. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the reason I'm holding this box is I have a gift for you. And if you just prayed to receive Christ, if you're here in the United States, I would encourage you to just text PRAYED, P-R-A-Y-E-D, to 97000. If you're here in the United States, we'll get this out to you. It's a gift with a Bible and a book I wrote. If you're outside the United States, we have some ebook material that we will get to you. All you need to do is text PRAY to 97000. So again, we're so glad that you've joined us for Good Friday service. Of course, our Easter services begin tomorrow at 4 o'clock. There's another one at 5.30. And then on Sunday morning, they're at 9.30 and 11.15. We're so excited about Easter at New Spring this year, even though it's not on our campus. It's an extraordinary service that you're not going to want to miss. So one more time, thank you for joining us on this Good Friday. And may the peace of Jesus Christ be with you all. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.